for me as well. It was during that time, particularly in high school, I think, where uh, my mind was kind of open to the world. So GCI really does try to get students at that younger age, uh, high school, where their curiosity about the world is growing. We want to expose them to other people. We want to have them have authentic conversations uh, where they can build friendships that last with people from different cultures, different countries, different perspectives, different backgrounds. back to the Worldwise Podcast. I'm your host, Rajika Pandari, and on this show, I bring you my take on the intersections between education, culture, and migration. Conversations about why education is important in opening our hearts and minds to the world have never been more important as countries and individuals have increasingly turned inwards and away from each other. And here to talk about all this today and to share how exposure to global ideas needs to begin early in life is my friend and amazing nonprofit leader, David James. I've known David for some years now and have always admired his wisdom and skillful nonprofit leadership. And we've often exchanged notes on the excitement yet challenges of launching a new nonprofit. This is also a timely conversation as the month of May is Asian American Heritage Month in the U.S. And as you will learn in this conversation, David has dedicated much of his career to U.S.-Japan exchanges and relations. More recently, his work has focused on fostering the idea of global citizenship in young people. And we start our conversation today with learning more about the Global Citizens Initiative which David now leads. Take a listen. David, welcome to the Worldwise podcast. I'm so excited to have you join me today. Well, thank you, Rajika, for having me. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and it's quite an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you know, there's there's so much I want to talk to you about, but you made a very interesting transition recently. So I actually want to start with that. And uh, you are the somewhat newish, because I know you began this role some months ago, but you're the somewhat newish executive director of an organization called the Global Citizens Initiative or GCI. So I wondered if to get started, you could tell us a little bit more about GCI and its approach. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Rajika. Uh, You are correct. In October, I became executive director of GCI, but uh, in many ways, I wasn't uh, completely new to the organization. I was a mentor to a high school student in the program about five years ago and have known the the founder for a while and have been a big uh, fan of what GCI does. GCI's main goal is to cultivate and create the next generation of global ethical leaders. And so we do that by selecting and carefully curating a small group of about 35 30 to 36 high school students who we bring together for a 10-month fellowship. It's a hybrid program. They uh, begin online, then we bring them right now to St. Andrews University for about uh, two weeks. And then for nine and a half months after that, they 
have a mentor and our team works with them as they bring a, what we call a global service project to life, uh, a project where they're working on a local issue, a, a topic, a challenge that they're passionate about, but something that resonates with the global. Uh, we have a robust alumni program. So those who participate in our program stay connected to us, we hope for life. And we also work with high school teachers. Uh, happy to tell you more about that as well. But um, in a nutshell, that's what GCI is about. And uh, it's, it's an exciting organization. That's really fascinating. So it's really this idea, right, that the exposure to global thinking and global citizenship needs to begin quite early and not wait till students are in college and that the earlier you begin, the more impactful it is. Yes. You're absolutely right. So I'm a big fan of, of Ed Reischauer, who was Kennedy's ambassador to Japan and a professor at Harvard. And, you know, people know Reischauer as being an expert on Japan, but he also wrote a book uh, on education. I think it was published in 1972, and it was really about what should the future of education look like? Why is education important? And I think, you know, most people aren't aware that he was so passionate about education. But in the preface to this book, he says, if you care about the nuclear balance of power, if you care about uh, world peace, if you care about international relations, you know, all these big topics that are in the news every day that certainly concern us and concern the future of humanity, he says, well, then you should be extremely concerned about what happens at the K through 12 level of education, because here it says is where the fundamental worldviews of uh, future leaders is shaped. And uh, I think, you know, I strongly um, believe in that. And I think for me as well, it was during you know, that time, particularly in high school, I think where uh, my mind was kind of open to the world. So um GCI really does try to get students at that younger age, uh, high school, where uh, their curiosity about the world is growing. We want to expose them to other people. We want to have them have authentic conversations uh, where they can build friendships that last with people from different cultures, different countries, different perspectives, different backgrounds. That is a very powerful quote, and we'll definitely include a link to the book in the show notes. But I'm also reminded of uh, an excellent uh, webinar that you all did um, a couple of months ago with Dr. Howard Gardner, and that I tuned in to. And uh, it was just fascinating for me to hear him speak, because I've been a student of psychology and, of course, uh, for years been studying his work. So it was very uh, it, it was a unique opportunity to actually hear him speak about some of the same ideas on how he really emphasized the need to begin uh, developing students' global thinking about the world around them at uh, at a much, much younger age and well before they hit college and we start thinking about study abroad programs. So thank you for sharing that. And speaking of that, um, now, I believe GCI has actually worked quite extensively with uh, the Harvard Graduate School of Education and Howard Gardner and Project Zero, which, of course, is very well known um, globally for its work. So so how how has that played out? Is there something more you can share with us about that? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely 
right, we have a deep tie with the Harvard Graduate School of Education and Project Zero and Howard Gardner and, and others, and, and also um, several professors at the Harvard Business School, such as Linda Hill, who is on our board, have been very instrumental uh, in the formation of GCI. So GCI, you know, was an idea uh, of the founder, Yumi Kuwana, who uh, grew up in the Cambridge area at a young age, but then um, Japanese ethnicity, but then moved to Japan and experienced, uh, you know, the the ups and downs of what it is like when you grow up in one country and then you move back to another. And so a lot of her own experiences uh, that took place during um, middle school years and perhaps early high school years, I think shaped her own views on how could we cultivate young people who appreciate uh, and understand people from different countries and, and cultures. And so later in life, um, Yumi, who who is the founder again, approached some of her uh, professors at Harvard Business School, where she is an alumnus, and started uh, brainstorming about this idea. And then after some initial uh, sketches of what GCI might look like, she befriended Howard uh, Gardner, who then uh, really, I think, helped uh, her shape a lot of the uh, fundamental principles that go into the GCI method and the structure of the program. So... In our interaction with them, we've built a program that combines at least three different components. One is design thinking. We Mm. uh, teach all of the students and the teachers who go through our program not what to think, but how to think. And so design thinking really helps them structure uh, not only the projects they're working on, but also gives them tools to analyze other challenges that they see in the world. So design thinking is one critical piece of uh, our method or our approach as we uh, engage with students and teachers. The second is Harkness. This really comes from Phillips Exeter Academy. Uh, we are, they're our founding partner school and we work very closely with them. And Harkness is a, uh, a pedagogy where students are sitting around a circular table and the teacher is not front and center really the students are and it's uh, training the students to build off of each other's ideas uh, to share their own thoughts and really empower them Uh, and I've sort of been thinking you could scale that up and maybe create something like Harkness diplomacy but uh, Mm -hmm. that's another (laughs) another idea and then we we you know through all of that of course we're focused on um, cross-cultural understanding um, and and learning about other countries and cultures. And so those three kinds of things are uh, combined. And so uh, Harvard Graduate School of Education and Project Zero has helped us refine that. And also we engage with them every year in a very a detailed and sophisticated review of our program and the uh, immediate outcomes that uh, our project has on the students and the teachers who engage with us uh, and um, some of the more longer-term impact of the program. Mm-hmm. And so um, based on the history that you shared of how GCI was formed and, of course, uh, the long association with uh, Harvard, so am I correct in concluding uh, you are the first exe- inaugural executive director, yes? That is correct. That's that's wonderful. So, so 
what are you so you've come in as the inaugural executive director you've now been in this role for a few months so what are you most focused on now and as you take this work forward what are your uh, your top one to two priorities great question rajika you're you're absolutely right to ask that we're in the midst of a strategic plan which we began in december and that has really helped us think about your question what should our priorities be what should we focus on where do we want to take the organization uh and we're still in the midst of that so it's it's an evolving thing but uh there's already a number of things that are emerging first it's very clear to us that our core program with the high school students uh is quite transformative. I've spent a lot of time talking to alumni of our program, and I am just struck by how they don't view GCI as something that's transactional. They just uh, did this program and and put it on their resume. Not at all. They um, they talk about how this particular program changed the way they think about life, about their own future. It cultivated relationships that last, that continue to last. And so I see uh, polishing that gem as sort of a core priority, you know, really staying true to that core mission. Um, there's always ways to improve programs, but, um, you know, really trying to learn what is it that makes it so effective and how do we polish that. But a related uh, priority is building up our alumni programs. As I mentioned, it's very clear that the students who've gone through our program have had these really amazing experiences and they've proactively stayed in touch with us. And I think as an organization, we can do a lot more to reach out to those uh, alumni and keep them all connected. So one particular program that we're getting ready to launch for our older alumni and older alumni for us are, you know, uh, maybe in their early years of graduate school or early years of their career, mm -hmm. but we're launching something called the Young Professionals Program. And this will be a program for uh, those students either getting ready to make the college to career transition, or as I mentioned, in the early stages of their career or graduate school, and helping them navigate uh, that particularly challenging um you know, part of life. And so uh, that is an idea that really came from one of our alums, uh, and we're building that up. So building alumni programs out is a core priority in addition to polish, polishing the current program. And the other thing we're, we're working on, it's still early, but is creating some regional hubs, uh, particularly in Japan, where we have significant ties and depth, uh, but we're also looking at uh, Istanbul, Turkey, and, and, and potentially London uh, as well as areas where we have a lot of uh, alumni, mentors, and partners uh, where we believe we could uh, build some programs out in those particular regions. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Japan. So this is actually a great segue into something I want to talk about, which has actually been the hallmark of uh, much of your career. And, you know, you've spent a large part of your career in the space of uh, U.S.-Japan relations and educational exchanges. And uh, most recently, right before uh, joining GCI, you were the chief advancement officer of the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology Graduate University, or OIST as it's known, based in Okinawa, Japan. 
And you were also the president and CEO of uh, the OIST Foundation based here in the US in which you were instrumental in setting up. And prior to that, you spent 18 years at the U.S.-Japan Foundation in progressively senior roles. And I think that's uh, that's when we first met, when I was with the Institute of International Education and you were with the U.S.-Japan Foundation. So how did you begin to focus on Japan? And just more broadly, how did your early experiences shape you as a global citizen yourself? And I know you very briefly mentioned something about high school earlier on in our conversation, but I would love to also learn more about some of your early foundational experiences that have brought you to where you are today. Well, thanks, Rajika. You, you, you know, you're right. High school was a really transformative time for me. And I think some of my experiences there shaped so much uh, of my life and my career. You know, I think it's Kierkegaard that says you have to live life forward, but you can only understand it looking backwards. And, you know, if I sort of look backwards, I can see the threads that connect. And in my mind started uh, with little drops in high school. So one really fundamental um, experience for me was a high school English literature teacher I had, David Murphy, who um, became uh, an incredibly close friend and, and mentor as well. Uh, he um, was a teacher I had for American literature and British literature. Uh, he was interested in uh, Asian literature and, and Japan, although uh, he still hasn't been to Japan. I'm still trying to get him there. <laughs> but uh, he was deeply interested in the works of Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. And I started reading those uh, transcendentalist writers. I was fascinated with them and wondered, where did they get their inspiration? What did they read. And it led me to um, some South Asian literature uh, mm. and, and Asian sort of thinking broadly. They were very heavily influenced by a variety of um, writings and works. And so it was a fascinating way through American literature uh, to get interested broadly uh, in Asia. At the same time, um, there were a number of hobbies as a high school student I was engaged with, like Aikido, a Japanese martial art. I didn't know where this would lead. What it did decisively make me think I wanted to do at that time was to become a high school English literature teacher. That's what I thought I wanted to do when I went to college. And I... Um, I went to college with uh, eventually declaring a dual major uh, in education and in um, uh, religion. I started taking classes on world religions as a way to understand other cultures and countries. And that study of religion led to the, to the Asian religions resonating back to my high school experience and ultimately led to uh, Japan. So that's uh, the story in a kind of nutshell. <laughs> That is incredible, David. And of course, we, we know each other well, and we've chatted often over lunches and coffees about uh, our professional pursuits. But this is um, a side of you that, that I did not know. We've never talked about this. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm so thrilled that I'm learning so many new things about you through uh, having you as a guest on the show today. That That is just... Um, a wonderful story about the impact of literature and how that was sort of when the seed was planted and that led to your interest in Asia and uh, look where you are today now. 
I'm speaking with David Jaynes, U.S.-Japan expert and executive director of the Global Citizens Initiative. Now, it's so timely that we are having this conversation during what in the U.S. is celebrated as Asian American Pacific Heritage Month. And with everything that you just shared, it's so clear that you're passionate about building bridges between the U.S. and Asia. And in, indeed, you've devoted uh, your life to uh, to this work so I want to ask you about Engage Asia, which is uh, another nonprofit that you set up some years ago. And I, I, I want to also use this opportunity to thank you because when the pandemic was in uh, full swing and my book came out, Engage Asia was in fact um, the only organization that actually held an in-person event on the, uh, on the day the book came out. And we had a lovely, lovely very intimate but wonderful uh, book launch along the along the Hudson River. So thank you for that, and uh, please share more about uh, Engage Asia. Rajika, thank you for being the guest in that event, the first uh, in-person event Engage Asia did. Um, I don't know if I'd say post-COVID, <laughs> since it's I don't know when that time is, but uh, but thank you. Um, Engage Asia really came out of experiences from working with the U.S. Japan Foundation, and it and it was launched with uh, my co-founder and colleague Stomu Miyazaki. Um, during the the last few years of of my time at the U.S. Japan Foundation, basically, I was spending a significant amount of my time uh, at that point as a grant maker, looking at and supporting programs that were training teachers in the U.S. and Japan to teach about the other country. Also, projects that connected schools and worked directly with students. Um, and as you know, a result of so many years of working in that field. I, I had some ideas of a nonprofit that might be able to uh, work in that space, uh, but do things a little bit different. And one of the things we wanted to do was um, focus on uh, really in-depth uh, training of a small number of teachers, not just in the U.S. or Japan, but uh, across Asia, and build deep relationships. I saw so many programs where teachers were going to Japan as a group. Uh, they were looking at Japan. They were observing it. They were certainly learning things, but they came back to the United States without having lasting friendships. And I wanted to develop some kind of nonprofit that would actually develop lasting ties between teachers in different countries. Um, this is very much a uh, you know a, a side project, but um, but something de I'm deeply passionate about. So pre-COVID, we did a program that brought uh, two teachers from the U.S. first to Taiwan. Uh, then we brought teachers from Taiwan to the U.S. And then in 2020, there was a plan to bring Taiwanese and American teachers to Japan, and COVID had other plans. But in a way, that led to some creative um, opportunities. We started a resilience webinar series where we looked at stories uh, throughout, uh, especially focus on Japan, but, but throughout Asia, where we had guest speakers come on and talk about lessons of resilience. So, uh, for instance, experts who had worked with uh, survivors of Hiroshima or members of the 9-11 community who had worked with victims of the 3-11 tsunami in Japan. Um, and also, pre-COVID, Engage Asia uh, also did some film um, 
screenings with directors of, of films, documentary films that were on Asia. Uh, and so, um, yeah, the organization has, uh, I think, done quite a bit for being a completely volunteer uh, nonprofit. And uh, my colleague, uh, Stomu Miyazaki, has just returned from Taiwan uh, and is putting together some plans for some projects for next year. It's just fascinating. And I also love how you've um, brought together, of course, the focus on education and teachers with also culture. And like you mentioned, there are the documentary films. And uh, I know you've had some book events and uh, you've had a tea ceremony. I think you had an event where people could partake in a traditional Japanese tea ceremony. So I think that's uh, that's that's so um Important And in fact, the tagline for this particular podcast is indeed sort of exploring those connections between education, culture and migration, because I'm also really fascinated in uh, the role that culture plays in, uh, in, in all of this. So that's really, really interesting. So I want to, as we sort of um, head towards the end of our conversation, um, you know, I don't want to lose the opportunity to talk to you about setting up nonprofits and nonprofit leadership, because you've certainly had a lot of experience uh, in this space. You've, as we've just discussed, you've had um, firsthand experience of actually setting up two nonprofits, the OIST Foundation, as well as uh, Engage Asia, and uh, leading three nonprofits, including GCI, which of course you're, you're leading now. So what are your thoughts on some of the key challenges that nonprofit leaders face today? And especially as we sort of move into this, and you rightly said, are we past the pandemic? I don't know that we are, but if we are to think of this as sort of a later phase of the pandemic, um, and just given where things stand, uh, what are your thoughts on some key challenges for nonprofit leaders? Yeah, thanks for that question, Rajika. There's certainly no uh, lack of challenges for nonprofit leaders, but I think you know one thought that was running through my mind as you were talking was um, it's a challenge and an opportunity. But I think that nonprofits really need to collaborate. Uh, we can't solve all the big challenges of the world um, that our missions call us to try to solve uh, alone. And so I th I, the way I see um, any organization that's out there, especially in the, the social impact or nonprofit space, is that we're part of an ecosystem. And uh, the only way, if, if we're really going to try to uh, resolve some of the, the biggest challenges is, is going to be through partnership. So I think um, a challenge and, and opportunity at the same time is finding uh, really good partners, other organizations that we can collaborate with to uh, solve some of these challenges. An another challenge, and it's, you know, you're the expert, <laughs> is really about you know, it's twofold. One, I would say having great clarity about what it is that you are trying to do as an organization, and then trying to determine how do you measure uh, or understand whether you've succeeded or not, you know, what kind of, of impact have you had. And I think um, this is very challenging because, um, especially in the education space, we're we, we can definitely understand some of the very uh, short-term maybe outcomes, 
But uh, the longer term impact we might not see, you know, for 30, 40 years, I, I sort of wonder myself, you know, does, uh, does my high school know <laughs> the impact that that teacher had on me? You know, no one's ever asked, right? So, um, you know, how do you, how do you understand the, the level of impact and create those, those feedback loops so you can, uh, you know, shift or, or merge? Um, so I think those are, are some of the things. Uh, the other day I was at a um, Harvard Business School course on driving uh, nonprofit uh, innovation and performance, and and I think they put it quite well. They said, you know, nonprofits are or social you know impact organizations are uh, charged with trying to solve some of the world's biggest challenges with often some of the smallest budgets <laughs> and some of the leanest staff, and so uh, you know that right there presents a whole host of challenges. But it, it's why I think I go back to my first point about the need for partnerships. Um, if we're really going to be uh, attempting to, in, in our case, for instance, develop understanding between cultures and develop future leaders, um, we're one piece of a, of a larger puzzle. Absolutely. And I love those two points, the emphasis on partnerships and in really thinking about um, impact as uh, as well. But I want to sort of close with uh, on, a, on a sort of more positive note, because we've talked about challenges, which is, of course, you know, as you said, they're challenges, but opportunities as well. But just on sort of thinking about some takeaways for individuals, so people like you who've either who want to launch or have, or lead a nonprofit, what sorts of specific mindsets and skills do you think are required? Or sort of just based on your own experience, what has tested you the most? What do you feel has, has sort of been, uh, you know, again, a mindset, a set of skills that, that you've been able to marshal to see you through what have undoubtedly over the past few years been some very challenging years for the nonprofit sector? Very good question. I think the first, the, the sort of two levels to your question, at least. Uh, one is maybe uh, uh, on the level of logistics of how you actually structure and, and set up uh, a nonprofit. And the other is maybe, um, you know, sort of uh, the bigger, bolder mission and how you operationalize it. So I think in terms of structuring a nonprofit, uh, you know, it's just a matter of really educating yourself about all the different uh, rules, regulations, and thinking through the various various uh, kind of structures and looking out there at, at models uh, that have worked. Um, and a key thing that you need is other people to believe in you. <laughs> so, you know, surrounding yourself with a bit of a community who, um, you know, can provide you feedback with what you're thinking of in terms of your mission, uh, help you understand how you fit into that larger ecosystem, and help you with very practical things. How are you going to get some initial funding to start up? How are you going to uh, structure this in, in the best way possible so that you can uh, begin to achieve success? So uh, those are some thoughts on sort of the the more logistical side. Um, I think in terms of, uh, you know, how do you actually, um, you know, fulfill your mission? How do you have impact? Um, you know, having the right structure certainly helps you, uh, but you really, you really need to understand, I think, um, not only how you fit in with the 
overall ecosystem that's out there, but how you're going to build your your brand and your reputation. Um, there are many organizations with years and years of history and significant financial resources. Um, as a small new nonprofit, uh, how are you going to enter that space? Um, what's the right way to, uh, you know, enter into that sort of field? And how do you understand what your comparative advantage is compared to other organizations. I think um, that's an iterative process. You don't necessarily know it all as you go along. So maybe maybe that's uh, the final thing to say is, um, you know, sometimes you, you have a very solid plan of how you're going to operationalize things, but other times you just have to take a risk and a bit of a leap of faith and be a bit playful and uh, see how things turn out because you you probably can't plan uh, for everything. And that goes to your point about you know, how are you going to deal with the unexpected like COVID or, or other things? Um, you can't plan for all of this. You can have some plans, uh, but you also need to uh, get out there and try some new things and and uh, develop that sense of feedback so you can understand what's resonating and what's not. I love all of that, David. Such um, wonderful, wonderful advice and uh, and real wisdom there. So, with that, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. This has been a fascinating conversation about how to build young global citizens, learning about your own work and impact in the space of uh, U.S.-Japan relations. And of course, all of your fabulous advice as, uh, as a nonprofit founder and leader. So thank you so much for joining me today. Rajika, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, you're such a leader in the international education field, and I've learned so much from you, and I thank you for having me as a guest. I loved this conversation with David, which pulled together three really interesting themes. How to get younger people to be more globally engaged, how David's early experiences in high school led to a fascinating career in U.S.-Japan relations, and what it means to both launch and run nonprofit organizations. For other Asian American themed episodes during this AAPI month, be sure to listen to episode 23 with Neil Ruiz of the Pew Research Center and episode 24 with Professor Ying Yi Ma. There's also episode 20 with author Dory Yang. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and also grab a copy of my book, America Calling, a foreign student in a country of possibility whose themes are reflected in everything we talk about in this podcast. Thanks as always for listening. I'm your host, Rajika Bhandari, and I look forward to being back with you soon with another episode on how education helps connect our hearts and minds to the world.